Good evening. Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God, our Heavenly Father, from our loving Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He was kind of a, oh, I guess, is it, is it, if I describe him as a shadowy figure, if you're my age, you might remember the old radio show, the, the who knows the evil that lurks within the hearts of men, the shadow knows. Remember that radio show? But he's not quite like that. Is he enigmatic, meaning he's kind of mysterious, not a whole lot of facts about the guy? Absolutely, definitely. So that makes him mysterious. Um, he is both the king of Shalom, Salem, undoubtedly the king of Jerusalem, but he is also described as being the priest, a priest of the Most High God, which is a most unusual position to find oneself in Jewish society. You can have one of the three offices, it's rare that you would have two, and as we're learning this Advent season, especially when we get to next week, it's almost impossible to have the title of three of these offices. But here's Melchizedek, that's his name. Melchizedek has two of the three offices that were established by God within his Old Testament form of governance and worship. He's king, and he's a priest priest of the Most High God. And the only satisfactory answer that one can come up with as an explanation to this dual office that he holds is that he was probably, no doubt, a very godly man, which sometimes gives you good characteristics and a good CV for being a king of God's people. Maybe he was a good military expert. That gives you a good CV for being God's king. You need to protect the people. But he was probably a godly man. And there was probably precious few men that could fit the bill. And so his fellow Israelites, either he was appointed by special dispensation, which is what I tend to, to think that what happened with him, with God, special appointment by God, or his fellow Israelites, like we do in the South Sudanese community, in the New Air community, they look around looking for a spiritual leader to start out as an evangelist and work towards being a pastor. And they say, Jacob, you're the God man of God that we want you to lead us. It could have happened that way, it's possible, not unheard of. Although in Jewish society and the way God had constructed things, it was more, most likely he was a special appointment by God. So here he is with these two offices. And, and what this means for us is that somewhere, somehow, the word of God, the true faith and confession of faith in this, in this Yahweh God, this Jehovah God, it had been passed down from the time of Noah. And so there were these little collections, these little pockets of people here, there, and everywhere, which means what? None other than God kept his promise and he preserved his church, which is absolutely awesome when you think about the odds against that happening. Not that the odds against God keeping his promises, by sure, by sure that's, that's to be expected, but the odds that God's Jehovah worship faith would actually continue to survive in this day 500 years before Moses even shows up on the scene. 500 years before the law is given at Sinai. 500 years before the worship life is even, even brought about. 500 years before the Levitical priesthood is even established. You have this, this unique character known as Melchizedek, king and priest. Now, all of this would be nothing more than a fascinating little incident and a nice little sidebar story in the life of Abram. 
Um, if it were not for some significant light and some significant verbiage that was uh, penned in the book of Hebrews by the writer to the Hebrews, we don't know who he was either. The best contender is probably Barnabas, the encourager, but we don't know for sure. The book of Hebrews sheds an awful light on this, on this man and his comparison to Jesus as Jesus being the ultimate high priest. So for one thing, we learn that Melchizedek is this Old Testament picture. He is this Old Testament type of Christ. And the Old Testament people, if you're sitting there pondering in your head, well, did they know that? No, they did not know that. They would not have made the connection. The connection is made by the writer to the Hebrews for the benefit of the people that he's trying to convince that they don't want to turn their back on the greatest of all high priests and go back to a priesthood that does not exist anymore. That's the whole point of the writer to the Hebrews message here. But the epistle of the Hebrews, though, it also emphasizes for us a second truth about Melchizedek that is absolutely basic to Christianity. Throughout the centuries of the Old Testament, God had instructed, well, throughout the centuries of the Old Testament, starting with Moses, so you're about 1500 B.C., God had instructed his Israelites to approach him through mediators, mediators that we would call priests. And they, those priests came from one of the 12 tribes, and they came from the tribe of Levi. That's the only place that a priest could come from. And they had to actually be able to prove their pedigree. They had to be able to prove their genealogy. And the three names of the guys that escape, escape my memory right now, but in the book of Ezra, there are two, maybe three lads that they are denied holding priesthood because they can't find their paperwork. It's kind of like trying to get into Canada without a Canadian passport or a permanent resident card. It's not going to happen, right? You're not going to be serving God, supposedly from the, from the tribe of Levi, without the right paperwork and authorization. Not going to happen. So he had, he had instructed his people to approach him only through these mediators known as priests and from the live, uh, tribe of Levi. Now, these Levitical priests, these tribe of Levi priests, they daily offered bloody sacrifices as a way to atone for sin, they were told, but also as a way to remind people of the day how serious sin really was. And it, what what this all did is it pointed to God as the only remedy for this sin. That was the whole point. These sacrifices were supposed to be the remedy for this sin. So Melchizedek, though, tying him back into this story, well, he's not from the tribe of Levi. In fact, we don't even know what tribe he's from. And had he been from the line of Levi, the assumption is that the writer here would have the writer of the Hebrews at least would have tipped us off and let us know. In fact, as I just got done mentioning, this whole Levitical priesthood isn't even going to be established for another 500 years or so. Okay, so here is our assurance in this one little compact incident involving Melchizedek that the Old Testament religious ceremonies, the Old Testament religious regulations, the centuries of bloody sacrifices were in no way, shape, or form ever intended to reconcile a guilty sinner to God. 
That wasn't their job. Remember, not only is Melchizedek a type of Christ, which is a shadow of things to come, but the entire worship life of the Old Testament people was, you could say, a type of Christ in that it was a shadow of things to come. It was appointing them towards what was going to finally reconcile your sin to God. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, God told God's people in several places in the Old Testament. And this continual shedding of blood should have eventually soaked into their head that says, you know, these animals can't be cut in it. There's got to be something greater than these animals that's going to come along and reconcile us to God. No, what they needed was a better priest than a sinful Levite. What they needed was a better sacrifice than an animal victim. Jesus is therefore called a priest in the order of Melchizedek because he is the one and only priest who can make a, make a sinner right through the all righteous and all just looking for God. So when we look into the pages of the book of Hebrews, and I would encourage you, this little devotion is loosely based on the verses you have in front of you. Hebrews chapter 7, 26, verse 26 and 27. And we'll repeat it again at the end just to kind of tie, as a way to kind of tie it home for ourselves. But I would really encourage you to jot down Genesis 14. And there you see the incident of Melchizedek and, and um, uh, Abram. Abram going after his son, Lot. That's how Melchizedek even shows up on the scene. I almost forgot to tell you that part. I was so anxious to get to the Melchizedek-Jesus part. Abram is on the scene because, or Melchizedek is on the scene because Abram had gone and gotten his 374 elite fighting men. They're like this, this Old Testament SWAT team, for heaven's sakes. These guys are servants. And they know how to wield a sword and wield a javelin like you wouldn't believe. And they go after Ketelomer and his allied kings, and they defeat him. Melchizedek comes out with food for his weary soldiers and his battle-hungry soldiers, and he offers them food and wine, bread and wine, which is another interesting connection that we won't pursue yet tonight, but that's another interesting connection. That's the setting in Genesis chapter 14. And I would encourage you, where, where the order of Melchizedek starts showing up in the, in the New Testament book of Hebrews, is starting about chapter 5. And then just work your way through these verses that we're focusing on tonight through the end of chapter 7. It's an absolutely fascinating read. Absolutely fascinating. But we look into these pages of the book of Hebrews, and we get a clearer picture of how different Jesus is, not only to this enigmatic, mysterious character known as Melchizedek, but also how different he is in compare and contrast just to the Levitical priesthood when it finally appears. So the first thing that I came up with was this. Melchizedek had no mom or dad that we know of. He had to have had a mom or dad. But it's so like the Jews to write down a person's genealogy. It gives them some substance. It gives them a place in the society. It kind of lets generations that follow know what his ranking was within that culture. There's no record of any mom or dad. There's no record of any genealogy whatsoever. There's no known origin for Melchizedek whatsoever. Zero. There's no known origin for Jesus either. He's eternal, just like his father in heaven. And if you're eternal, it means that you never came from somewhere. <laughs> you never came from a place. You've always been there. 
You always have been and you always will be. Like Melchizedek, Jesus received his priesthood by special appointment of God. The second thing that I came up with is to kind of compare and contrast so we can be edified by what it is our high priest, great high priest Jesus has done for us using this Melchizedek model. Melchizedek has no successor in his ministry. None is mentioned. And if there had been, given the lofty state of being a priest in this culture, there certainly would have been some mention of it somewhere. The Holy Spirit, you would think, would seem fit to preserve it. But big goose egg, zero. He is, Melchizedek, that is, is a unique, a, just a big, giant, unique one-off, if you will. The entire printing press, of the, the entire coinery of the entire nation got all geared up to mint this one guy, right? This one, the, all of the work of Jesus and, and his Father in heaven, they fired up the divine mint, and they minted this one guy known as Melchizedek. He's just this one-off. Jesus, by any estimation of that definition, is the most unique of all one-offs. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. I came across this interesting little factoid that in my head it kind of ties in here, and I mentioned it with Pastor Cuck this afternoon. I was reading, trying to find some, you know, additional little information that we could just kind of supplement the sermon with a little bit, so it's, you know, it's not just a seven-minute sermon, because God forbid I have to keep my reputation, you know. Um, there's this church history, this, this church historian by the name of Josephus, and he actually went back through the extant literature of the Jews, and he actually counted up, and he discovered that from the time of the establishment of the Levitical priesthood with Aaron, 1,500 years plus 70, until the time that Jerusalem is destroyed by Rome, 1,570 years, there were 83 high priests. Do the math. It's almost 20 years a man, almost to the day. It's incredible. But the point is, there was always a successor after Aaron. One man died and another was raised up, and another, and another, and another, because they all saw death. With Jesus, there is no successor. There's no successor at all, because Christ's priesthood needed no successor, because his priesthood was, an un, was uninterrupted by death, meaning that his priesthood was permanent which means that there's no half-salvation going on here, which means that there's no endless, continual sacrifices day in and day out, over and over and over again, meaning that he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Yeah, I've got that look in my eye where I'm going to go off on a sidebar for a second. Listen to that again. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Who do you know this Christmas season, this Advent season, who's hurting? Can you picture them? They know not where to go. They despair of any human help. 
They may not be able to do just the Christmas thing for their kids. It's, it's like, I don't even know if I'm going to finally be able to get a job and pay the rent. I, the city is threatening to, to cut off my, my, my rent assistance for whatever reason or not that my ex caused all sorts of problems for me with the city. The health condition? Not everyone's as blessed to be diagnosed with myeloma that at least has a really good prognosis at the end. Some people are diagnosed with lung cancer, pancreatic cancer, colon cancer too late. You just saw Christy Alley the other day. She let that test go too long. Who do you know that needs to hear this message that he is able to save completely those who come to God through him? Because I'm going to tell you something. There is no knowledge greater to know that your Savior's got your back, no matter what the outcome of your human life is going to end up being. None. It's the richest gift that you can give to anyone this season. The third thing I came up with was this, is a way to compare and contrast Melchizedek and the Levitical priests and Jesus Taken from chapter 5, every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. You've got the priest's job description right there. The first thing that he was supposed to do is to represent the people before God. Well, and yes, represent the God before people, but it's interesting that the Old Testament always describes his job description as representing the people before God. They cannot just come to God, come willy-nilly, come walking in whenever they darn well please. They need to go through this mediator, the priest. The second thing that his job description was, was to be able to make sacrifices on behalf of the people to God. Now, Jesus is this superior high priest, which is the whole rant and roll and theme of the writer to the Hebrews. And he basically points out, not only is Jesus as the great high priest, the representative of God's people before God, he's the representative of the entire world before God. Oh my heavens. And not only does he make sacrifices for the people's sins to God, he himself, the priest, becomes the sacrifice to God for the people's sins. It's incredible. But the fourth thing I also came up with for you tonight is this compare-contrast between the priesthood and Melchizedek and Jesus. There's, there's a little bit of an, a softer side that's spoken about here, about the human priest. He's, he, the writer of the Hebrews said, he, that is the human priest, is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. But you see, Jesus had no sin. He had no weakness because he was God, right? He was born of a virgin. Her name was Mary in a town called Bethlehem where there was no room for them in the inn. And he was born in a stable. But just because he's God doesn't mean that he's emotionless, because he's also human. He was born of that Mary. So we're told that we do not have this cold and emotionless robot for a savior. We're told there in the middle of Hebrews chapter four, chapter four, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. 
Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And now I ask you to roll back to that person who you want to share the message. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him. And you share with them that message of the heart of this Jesus and why it's so important to you that they know who this Jesus of Christmas really is. Have a prayer with them. No, I'm not asking you to break fellowship uh, practices that we have, but you know, if they have no faith whatsoever, how can you break fellowship practices? Plus, we're ministers of the gospel, not ministers of the law. You have a prayer with them, and you let them hear the mighty things that your great and glorious God can do. At this point in your Christian walk, you certainly should be able to cobble together a grand and glorious prayer about what Jesus has done to save sinners from, from hell, death, and the devil right? Share with them that message of Advent, because they need to hear it, especially that person that you have envisioned in your head at this point of them, at this point in their life. You know, you would think after countless years of blood sacrifices and slaying goats, uh, God would have been finally satisfied. You would have think God, you would have thought that maybe God finally got to the point after a couple hundred years where he said, you know, I'm tired of all this smoke in my eyes, and uh, okay, enough, time out. You guys are forgiven. I give up. You've, 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 you've beat me over. Enough sacrifices already. Um, that's not the case, is it? you will find that every religion in the world, except for Christianity, teaches you that you can achieve forgiveness of sins by making some sort of human sacrifice. And I don't mean making a human sacrifice like the old movie where the girl is about ready to be thrown over into the volcano to appease the gods, although they had that as well. What I mean is, there is every other religion in the world other than Christianity is looking to you to create some human effort in order to get God to wink, wink, nod, nod at you. You do good, God is happy. But Jesus is different. And that's the whole point that we're trying to make this evening. He's honest about our sins because he's, he's not a man that he should lie. He wants you to know how serious your sins really cause you to stand or not stand with any sort of dignity and honor before your holy creator whatsoever. He tells us that no human effort is enough to be able to appease your God in heaven. There are just too many sins and the cost is too great. I was thinking of an analogy for this. Um, my parents had built this beautiful tri-level home in Hales Corners, Wisconsin, and they built it right next to a swamp. I don't know why, but it wasn't a real good move for two seasons of the um, summer. And so the kids and I, we, all my siblings got together one day, and for Father's Day, we decided to buy my father um, a bug zapper, right? Because we lived next to the swamp. And so he very proudly opened it up and thanked the children profusely, and we were gonna go and have an enjoyable night on the, on the porch that night, the patio that night, and he installs his bug zapper and he gets it plugged in and we're all sitting around and it's getting to be that, that evening time. 
where the nemesis start flying in to come and suck your blood. And that buzzer is just starting to go bzz, 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 bzz. And then it accidentally catches a moss. Then it's buzzing and it's buzzing and it's buzzing. And we're not feeling any fewer mosquito bites. How many of those bug zappers would we have had to purchase in order to take on the formidable billions of, of uh, mosquitoes that wanted to take us over? How many bloody sacrifices would be necessary to atone for all the sins of all people? There's just too many of them. The cost is just too great. We can't afford it. There's no way that we can atone for all the sins of all people of all time. You can't give up enough for Lent. You can't give up chocolate long enough during Lent, right? Um, you can't compare yourselves enough to other people enough to make you look better than everyone else in the world until God finally says, I re relent, I'll let you into my heaven. No, it's not gonna happen. You cannot put up enough into the offering plate. You cannot produce enough human sacrifice in order to appease your God. It's impossible. And that's why you need a great high priest like Jesus, the priest who's different. Jesus' high priestly prayers continue to serve as intercessory prayers to his fathers here to this very day. Hour in and hour out, day in and day out, if there be such things in heaven, the high priest Jesus supports and sustains us with his, with our prayer, with his prayers. But what more? What more could this priest do? What more could this priest have done? There's nothing more that he can do because he's done it all. He's cleansed us by his blood. He's renewed us daily by his Holy Spirit. He intercedes for us endlessly before the Father. And he presents us finally, at last, faultless, before his throne, before that beatific vision, which is the lamb at the center of the throne, which is where he promised to bring us in the first place, and which is where he will bring us as our great high priest, our savior, our king, our prophet. When Christ offered himself up as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of God's people, he did what 1,000 years of Levitical priests and what even Melchizedek could not do, he made the absolutely perfect, perfect, and complete sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And that's what makes him the perfect high priest. And that, brothers and sisters in Christ, we thank God for that he is so different for that. Listen again to this great high priest of yours. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for our sins and then for the sins of the people. No, he sacrificed for their sins once for all. He sacrificed for sins for you once for all. And then he offered himself, when he offered himself. This is the word of our Lord. Amen. I invite you to stand. I